0: A podcast one production. From the inside with Peter Ricks.
1: Peter Ricks is an Australian music industry veteran who has spent his life working in and around the music business in Australia. From managing artists like Marsha Hines, John English, Hush and Billy Field, to 14 years as the original producer and chairman of the ARIA Music Awards. Along the way, Peter has made a lot of friends and it's some of these friends that you will meet over the course of this series. They are the success stories and the survivors, fascinating characters who have helped steer the Australian music business from the 70s onwards and somehow are all still relevant and thriving today. This episode's guest in particular is someone very close to Peter's own career in the business as a manager. Here's Peter Ricks.
0: If you grew up in Australia in the 70s and you had any affection at all for contemporary music, then you were watching Countdown on Sunday nights on ABC TV. You were also glued to a single AM radio station in each capital city that programmed what they lovingly called Top 40 radio. Being 2SM in Sydney, 3XY in Melbourne, 4IP in Brisbane, and 5AD in Adelaide. Today's very special guest was one of those stars who came bursting out of your television through countdown. Firstly in black and white, and then with the advent of broadcasting in glorious colour, Les Gok and his band Hush dominated the airwaves both on radio and through their many countdown appearances. It was a five-year exuberant ride through an era of Australian music that is unlikely to be repeated and one of its defining moments was Hush performing Boney Maroney on Countdown as the record hit number one in Melbourne and number four nationally in September 1975. All the colour, all the glitz, all the high heels, everything about it was a show of success. Les Gok has gone on to serious success as a composer, a producer, a serious businessman, and these days as a sound designer. Lovely to have you at the microphone, Uncle Les.
2: Thank you, Uncle Pete.
0: (laughs) I'd best declare, as you just heard, that for a large part of my delinquent youth, I was the manager of Hush. We were together through the first half of the 70s and I've always believed that managing the band was the best education that I could have ever had. Can I tell the story of how? Hang about... on. Yeah, come on. I've got to finish my script. Ha- yeah. Ever had in how to survive the music business. Every day of my journey through that band was a learning curve, and every moment of my journey with them was quite joyous. Was it joyous for you, Les?
2: And vice versa. Yes. So, what happened? You know, was, you're going to take over. I yeah, know. I'm going to take over now. Uh, so, what happened was, I was in um, a, well, a a band where we we played for free once a year um, because <clears throat> we only wanted to play music that was absolutely obscure um we hated commercial music that was our mantra uh and this little band that i met at school and and so forth uh we entered a thing called the hoadley's battle of the bands ah. yes good old hoadley wait well, it should come back if only hoadley's came back you we know. got the violet crumble bar has a life of its own surely so. oh absolutely it, it, with violet Cum- crumble bar battle of the bands would be great um So uh, this band, I remember the two songs, we were allowed to play two songs in this heat in Cabramatta. One was, and no one in the world knows this song. I mean, it's so obscure. It's a song called Laundromat by Rory Gallagher. Nobody, nobody would know that song. And then the other song, which we thought, oh, we better do something kind of popular. So we, we had a go at doing... Um, ten Years After's um, Going Home from oh, yeah. you know, version from, from Woodstock. Yeah, good song. Anyway, in that particular audience, look, we got a pretty good response because, because there were a lot of uh, drugged-out surfies in the crowd and all that kind of stuff. But also in, on our heat was this other band that we thought, a oh, horrible girly band, you know, uh, they were called Sherbert. Um, uh, and we thought, oh, yeah. They'll never get anywhere. They'll never get anywhere. They sing all these harmonies and it was all so girly. Oh, my God. Was was there lots of, in those days, lots of satin and things? They had, they were sort of dressed up in a girly kind of way. Look, it was just hideous. Uh, But anyway, they won. Um, But when I walked off stage, um, a couple of guys came up to me who kind of, they kind of looked, like they were certainly in a band and then I recognised them and they were in the heat the week before that my band and I went to see and I can't remember where it was but wherever the heat was uh, these guys had been in the band that won the week before and, uh, and they were from this band called Hush um and these two guys walked up and I thought oh yeah those two yeah that's from yeah that that was another girly band that I didn't like. <laughs> um a lot of girly bands in those days. They right? were everyone was girly nobody played Laundromat by you know Rory uh, Gallagher. Gallagher god. Um anyway, <clears throat> so these guys came up to me and they said um, look uh yeah that was pretty cool man. Um and that's probably because you know the I only play one way I, you know I get on stage and then I have to throw the thing around. I have to sort of go nuts and all that. That's just what I do. Anyway, they thought that was interesting, but more interesting was that Rick, who was one of the people who was there, was Chinese. Mm. And I think Smiley, who was also there, just saw this vision of bookends. We have one Chinaman on one side and a Chinaman on the other side. It, yeah, that would look cool, you know. Um, I'm sure that was what was going through their minds. Anyway, they said, look, we're looking for a guitar player because I think um, uh, the, their guitar player was Robin, Robin Jackson. Um, now he'd had
0: enough already. The pressure was well, too much. Well, his
2: free. girlfriend had enough, I think, mm-hmm. and so they were looking for it. Anyway, so they said, would, you know, would you come? I thought, well, why would I? I've got this band we play once a year. I mean, what What, what, what were I you want?
0: doing? For, were you Had you left school? <clears throat> uh,
2: no, yeah, I was in uni. I just started uni and so, so we got a gig once a year at the architecture faculty um, playing in, uh, all night. And I remember one night um, one of the guys who got up and jammed with us was Dennis Tech. Oh, wow. Right. Um, so Radio they, Birdman. Radio Birdman. Well, that's how far back it goes. Um, I thought he was a crap guitar player too.
0: Anyway... Your opinion sometimes led to success at the other
2: end. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Um, Anyway, um, so uh, anyway, these guys said, "Look, you know, we we do like a a gig a week." You know, I thought, "Jeez, that's pretty good. That's pretty damn, you know, that's impressive." Anyway, I told my other mates. I said, "Oh, look, I, you know, they gave me their number, but I'm not, you know, not that interested." They said, "Why not? That's a gig a week. That would be fantastic." You know, I said, "Really? You, You think so?" So anyway, I took this meeting and this meeting was in Glebe and um, uh, so I met the rest of the band uh, and they all kind of looked pretty cool. I mean, they were like a proper band in a like a proper band house. It was all very exciting. And they had a Ford Transit van. Ford Transit van with Hush on the side. And a PA. It doesn't get more professional than that. <laughs> and, they, and they had that, a manager. What year was this? They said they had a manager uh, and they said, but just uh, we've got to warn you. <laughs> You're going to meet this guy Peter Ricks, and honestly, just don't step out. Like, he is, he's you know, scary, very very
0: scary guy. So I, <laughs> I would like to point out I was two years older than the band, which is the only reason that
2: so that scary. Uh, but typically, and and I've learned that this is was going to be the pattern from there on in. He um, was about an hour and a half late. <laughs> Um But it was it was part of the keep the fans waiting trick, you know. It's like, yeah, no, Peter's on his way. He's on his way. He's, like, you know, he's a busy guy, you know. And he was like, I don't know, you were twenty three or something. Yeah, yeah.
0: mate, twenty two probably. Yeah, yeah.
2: Anyway, it, here comes this um uh, man who walks in and says, oh, he looked like a manager. He had a suit and everything, and so, so that was the first time I met you.
0: Ah, yeah. And but that that you, when joining the band. Because that was a major change for them because the, I mean, I'll tell just a little yeah. bit about you, is Robin had decided to go and he was quite stressed out about being in a band that did one show a week, to be blunt. Mm. But um, they had quite a fan base in Sydney of young girls playing suburban dances, which is sort of not, you don't see much of that anymore. And the keyboard player was actually working in a record company. Mm. And the only reason that I was even around was that I used to run another dance in uh, on a Friday night in the middle of town that I would book Hush for, and then one day they turned up and said, "Oh, here's a here's a record contract which um, which Warner Brothers, who was who Chris was working for, had offered them, but you felt very much that it was a tokenist gesture somehow." between that offer and them recording, you turned up and of course the, the band became far harder edged when you arrived in the building. Do you remember those days of the Saturday nights and three jobs in a night in the back of the van?
2: absolutely do, I remember. I remember it better than I remember what happened last week. <laughs> um, uh, but it was the way you gigged. Um, you would do, well firstly, the gigs actually existed. I, I should go back a bit, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong uh, here. This is what, uh, this is uh, my understanding of the history of it, is that we were a band that had a, 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 an underage following. Um, we did make a name for ourselves in a pub, the Brighton pub, um, and what started off with about 20 or 30 people, you know, when we first started, within a month or two was 1,200 people. Uh, and they were queued around and around the block. Um, um, we we knew we were onto something. The band was a good band. Yeah, and 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 it rocked. And it, we made a massive name for ourselves uh, just in that kind of environment. We knew that we. You put us in front of an audience. Doesn't matter how big it is. We know we'll do something. Um, but the I think the genius that uh, you had was to uh, say, look, there's no point playing pubs because the pub crowd isn't ultimately going to be our crowd the crowd that we want to talk to is the 14 year olds and the 15 year olds and they can't go into a pub legally so we started got playing organizing gigs at town halls basketball stadiums surf life-saving clubs you know all that kind of stuff so that we could actually get um, um, you know underage people there um, and there was no OH&S, so it was fabulous we could do whatever we liked.
0: <laughs> well, yes. The, the 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 biggest problem with that world, Uncle Les, was that it was always much more difficult to collect the money afterwards. Yes. In those moments. Yeah. But
2: but the thing is that um, the genius of it, which I, you know, I've I've often thought um, that what we did was we cut our teeth on playing not only. A lot, but but on a Saturday night we would do three gigs, one after the other. We would be in Curl Curl one minute, we would hop in the back That's of right. the van, swe- all sweat. Uh, Tarran Tar-
0: Point would have been number then two. Then go
2: to Tarran Point, which we'd go. Peter, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, it's true. And then we'd go to some other gig after that in you know Cabramat. I don't know, whatever. But the thing, the point is that these gigs existed, and not only that. Every every place that we played like that seemed to have fifteen hundred, two thousand people, whatever it was.
1: Les Gok. In a moment, Les looks back at the power of Countdown in driving chart success for Hush and what it took for the band to have Countdown's number one song of nineteen seventy five. So the remembering, you know, it's
0: important for you to put this into context for the for everyone that's listening, is that on one side there was you, and there was sort of sherbet, and there was a couple of others which you'll probably talk mm. about. But on the other side there was Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Yeah, and we were on the same label. You were on the Hush was on the same label as Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, and you went into a studio in Sydney, um, down on the Haymarket in those United days, Sound. United Sound. And I think the budget for that first album from Memory was twelve thousand dollars. And we invited the Hush fan club to it. So it was, the album was called Loud and Life.
2: Again, a piece of genius because um, what, um, the, I, I, what, from what my memory is, the, the the record company thought, there's no way we're going to do an album with you guys. You, you've only had like a half a hit Um you know, yes, you've got a big following in Sydney, but, I mean, you know, I mean, to, to commit the money to to do an album, it just doesn't make sense at this stage of your career. Somehow, between you and, you know, uh, Chris Nolan or whatever you... It was Tony Hagarth. Tony, Tony Hagarth, okay. Convince them that, look, okay, let's do it really, really cheaply. Here's three hours in the studio or whatever it is. Go in there and knock yourselves out. So, fine. You know, we just do our live set and... And then you wheeled in the fan club, who we knew were going to go nuts anyway. Uh, And so the whole concept is really genius from a a marketing and from all that point of view. Uh, We just got up on stage and just sort of did the set once through, bang. Um, No overdubs, no anything, that's it. And and it was called Loud and Live. And And Get the Feeling was
0: in the middle of that there somewhere though, wasn't
2: it? No, I don't think it was. It was a separate um, recording. single. Yeah, separate recording. Right. And Loud and Live was just this album on its own. The fans, anyway, it, it went gold. Um, well, the story mm. is that
0: they released it, Warner Brothers, because they were believed that you weren't going to have any success, mm. released it the week after. They released More Arse Than Class,
2: yeah, the right.
0: Billy Thought record. Yeah. And you sold more copies. Yeah. And they yeah. never forgave us. <laughs>
2: But I loved Billy and I loved Billy at that period and it was much, but it was, you know. But we were heading, we were the forerunners of uh, a wave. We were the new wave heading in a different direction. It was the transition, wasn't it? It was the transition, no 20-minute solos, no drum solos, no, um, you know, drug-crazed, you know, um, denim-clad, actually yeah we yeah. we were we were much more um uh, what keith our singer brought out from the uk was this whole other thought mm. which was we're there to entertain we're there to get on a stage and just put on the god almighty great show and uh and a part of that is getting dressed up mm. and a part of that is just who we are as a stage act and certainly Audience participation, all that kind of stuff, and um, we were the, the polar opposite of um, Billy and and the whole group of people who I happened to have m- admired mm. as musicians. But but I knew that where we were heading was the the new phase.
0: And so, tell us tell, the journey into because serendipity was that Countdown arrived. Mm. And that wasn't that long after the first album, was it?
2: No, it was, um, we, um, I think we'd started recording in Melbourne. Melbourne was the centre of the universe. It's, it may very well, you know, the pendulum may swing back that way. But um, Sydney wasn't the centre of the universe for a number of things, certainly certain businesses and so forth. Uh, But the music industry, Melbourne was the centre of the universe. It had the best recording studios. It had the, you know, uh, best of kind of everything. And, all the clubs were there. And the clubs were there. And the, it was the hippest, coolest, yeah, As a, yeah, from from music point of view, uh, Melbourne really rocked then. So you had to go down to Melbourne and, and try and, and make it. And um, <clears throat> hence, you know, I mean, Countdown, it, it made a hell of a lot of sense that Countdown came from Melbourne. I think Happening 70 and all those that all came out of... Mm. Ross D. Wiley. But you couldn't uh, have a marriage uh, more suited than the advent of color television, um, which is, and, and so Countdown was the beginning, you know, towards the beginning of, of that. And then you have a band like us uh, as the forerunners, where our whole focus, our whole thing was we were outrageously dressed. Um, you originally put us into um, uh, costumes made by the opera company and they were still kind of probably the most outrageous and the best costumes we ever had because these things, I, I mean, mine was a gold lame jumpsuit. There was absolutely, there was no guessing you know what was underneath the drum suit? You know, it was. You dressed
0: to the left, I understand. Yes, that's
2: right. And um, and uh, with the floor to, um, uh, you know, arms, you know, from from the arm down to the floor. Uh, um, there was
0: uh, a capy thing,
2: wasn't it? No, it was just the, like sleeves that ah. went down the thing, which made it absolutely impossible to play guitar. <laughs> I, uh, did, I didn't care. And gold boots. And and that was all just my outfit, you know. So they totally, I mean, from there's Billy Thorpe on stage one minute, you know, all, you know, and then then we walk on, and it's like, oh my god, what is that? Um, so uh, it, we were so made for Countdown, mm. we were so right for colour television exploding, mm. <laughs> and um, the, the marriage couldn't have been more perfect, and that's why I guess we were successful. So
0: what? Did that do for the band's journey, like live performance career?
2: Um, okay, here are here are the facts and figures. This is um, uh, how I, um, so I, I think of things like this, you know. Yeah, um, I know, Les. Yes, I, that's right. You, you're, you're a ponderer. Yeah, that's I know. Right. I'm a ponderer. Um, we played, you know, successfully. We, you know, we might. Uh, play to, um, you know, a thousand, two thousand people a night would be, you know, fantastic and do a couple hundred shows or whatever. That's a lot of people. Um, But one appearance on Countdown back then, and this is when the population was about 15 million in Australia or, you know, thereabouts, um, the the show was so huge and because it was played on the Sunday and then repeated on the Saturday, you would be effectively playing to 3 million people in Australia in a week. That would be like twice the size of um, the opening of the Olympic Games audience, if you like. Um, it's massive. It would take us, it, I figured it would take us at least 10 years to play that many people and we were doing it in one week. Um, that's what um, it did for us. It meant that right, and, and because the ABC is right across the country in all the country towns and so forth, We were as famous in Dada as we were in... uh, Sydney. Yeah, Sydney, as in, you know, um, Manjimup or wherever. We could go anywhere in the country and they knew who we were and they couldn't wait for us to to get there. Um, That's what it did. We were were a a band that was uh, cut our teeth playing live. That's all we know. You know, that's what we were great at, um, putting on a great show. So... You put us in front of an audience anywhere in the country and we could travel anywhere in the country. They knew who we were. Um, um, It was just, uh, um, you know, incredible success one after the other.
0: So then somehow in the middle of this
2: madness, Mm. because it
0: it sort of was a bit mad, along came Robbie Porter Mm. and a a series of seriously big hits. Did that change the band at all? Did it the balance, the chemistry in the band, or was it just too busy to worry about? Did Robbie change the band, or well, the well
2: Robbie became the producer of. Well, let, let me talk about Robbie. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, because Robbie's a really interesting guy. His name was Robbie G. In the fifties, he was had, and he'll regalia with, you know, how many number one records he had. 55 Days of Peking. Well, and he had Jezebel or whatever the songs were. Uh, They are all pretty corny and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they were number one records. What he uh, instilled in us, which is another part of our education, um, whether we wanted to, um, whether we were all on board with it or not, was that um, the most important thing is kind of success in, in, what I mean by that is you've got to, you've got to shoot for uh, uh, to try and get a number one record, you know, if you've got a number two record, a number five record or whatever it's no, not quite as, you've got to go for that number one record and we just thought this is just that's, you know, I mean how do you how do you do that? But his whole focus was to go for that to shoot for that which was, which meant that we made um, some uh, uh, creative decisions that, that we thought were, mm, we weren't that happy with.
0: Yeah, it was just uh, my question really. Yeah,
2: and so Bonnie Maroney was one of those um, uh, creative uh, decisions that were made by Robbie who said, uh, I think you should record this song. It'll be a huge record and he played us the song. and It was uh, written in the 50s by... Larry Williams. And we'd never heard of the song before. Um, He'd had uh, Daddy Cool (coughs) record it beforehand uh, and he thought it was going to be a big hit then. It wasn't. Um, And so we just thought, what a daggy song. It's just, you know. But we, you know, he he ran the record company. He was our producer. He said, look, just have a go. So I came up with the arrangement that Mm. This is the one that you heard. You're here now. I just thought, well, I'll try and rock it up a bit. I'll try and give it a bit of our flavor. <clears throat> he thought it was brilliant. We recorded it, and for six months, nothing happened. Mm. Um, I and, remember. Yeah. And we were just sitting there going, oh my God, what have we done? Anyway, uh, we performed it on Countdown, and like straight away, that performance just. It just, the end of that year, 1975, it was the countdown number one record of the year um, above Abba and above Sherbet and above Skyhooks or whatever else was around. Uh, So unbelievable. So there's a lot of lessons to be learnt in that. Um, uh, Just understanding, uh, and and Robbie's not, you know, the world's most lovable person, Um, but... But he had, there was a lot to be learnt there was a lot, in in all that if you just sort of strip away everything else you just sort of go, hmm, I'll take that one on board, I'll 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 try and learn from that.
0: And Glad All Over was a good follow up too, yeah. wasn't it?
2: Yeah, Glad All Over was great um, we, again, it was just taking uh, another song and just giving it a totally, you know never heard before arrangement mm. of it, uh, which just sort of suited us and uh and so that was that was great, um, but then the band started changing after that. What changed? Well, um, we, it, it was really to do with Keith. Um, Keith uh, was um, who was the the person who you could put in front of a thousand kids. You could put in front of twenty thousand um, at the Canberra Day Festival. You could put in front of two hundred thousand at the um, you know, uh, concert of the decade and it wouldn't matter. Mm. Um, he would he would just grab that audience from the moment he walked on stage, he would grab them and just turn them around and even if people had never heard of us before, and, and that's how we started. I mean, people who, you know, would come to a pub and say, oh, who are these guys? They look funny, you know, got funny clothes on. Uh, he would just turn it and turn it into a bit of fun and, and everyone would have a great time. And he learned all these skills back in, in the UK. Um, in a band. In a band, um, you know, starting when he was 13 and, and so forth. But anyway, the thing is that he was, he was a, a great front man, a great, great front man who could um, win over audiences. That was, that was what we needed. But he started changing for, and we didn't understand why. Um, he, his performances were not Keith, that's the only way I could put it. Um, and without Keith uh, up front um, doing his thing, it's like a, a football team without, you know, the players up front not being able to perform properly. You sort of go, well, the rest of us are going to struggle a bit as well if, if he's not. Yeah, if the, one of the, if
0: the captain of the team or whatever. you're Yeah. So was it a planned finish to the band for you?
2: Oh, for me, um, yes, in a way. Um, what um, Keith had already—it was—it was very difficult. Keith uh, and we didn't realise till years later that it was an illness that Keith had. Mm. Um, uh, the cause that it was, you know, it, but back then it was—we didn't know what was going on.
0: Yeah, what's wrong with you, mate?
2: Um, and so we had one more album that we were committed to do, which we did, and it was kind of our. More adult album, if you like, a prophetic uh, title yes, prophetic uh, no, nothing uh, stays the same forever which was um, uh, which is a great um, title uh, and uh, the, the but during the recording of this, which was down in Melbourne at uh, uh, TCS studios in Melbourne, uh, one day i we arrived at the studio and and remember we we had we were playing to lots of people and had number one records and all that but um, I remember looking out into the car park and a, 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 a muso drove in but he had like a, a brand new silver Alfa Romeo and he was uh, the keyboard player, um, one of the keyboard players in the bootleg band. Now the bootleg band were nowhere near as successful as we were. They played to the hardly any people and, you know, they they had a couple of hits but that was about it. And he tried, and I thought, how did how does he get this silver out for what does he do to do that? And I, so I asked one of the engineers, I said, well, what, you know, how, how did he inherit it or what was the story? He said, no, no, he writes jingles. I said, Ah. Oh, <laughs> oh, what are jingles? <laughs> <laughs> so um uh, there in my little head was, you know, this scene. Yeah. yeah. I thought, okay, um uh I've got, we've got to move on, the band's not going to go much further and it's going to be very sad if we keep going on and just sort of fizzle out over, over time uh, or else I can just make my move and just sort of say, look, I think I'm, I'm done, which I did. I said, I think I'm done. And pretty much everyone else in the band said, oh, yeah, I suppose we're pretty tired too, we're, we've had enough.
0: And I think it would have thought... been very
2: hard for them to, to continue without you, mate. Maybe. I just sort of said, look, I don't mind. You know, you just find another guitar player. I'm just, I'm ready to do something else. Yeah, find
1: a new, another Chinese guitar player. That's
2: right, yeah.
1: With the bookends, remember. That's true. This is Peter Rix's conversation with member of 70s group Hush and more recently composer, producer and sound designer Les Gok. For both Peter and Les, the growing success of Hush was a period of learning about the music business and about life on the road. It was an education on the job. In part two, Peter and Les share their stories of how they both came to work together, the touring life and hanging out with Australian rock's finest. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.